scripture reading this evening. Really two, but I didn't even bother putting one of those on there. The first one from Exodus, which is, as I've already said, you shall not steal. Um, But then we have a New Testament presentation of this same commandment in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. This is the word of our God. Well, that can't be right. Hang on. We'll find it. But it's not 4 verse 8. I apologize for this. 4 verse 28. A 2 can make a big difference. 4 verse 28. It's no one to blame. I, I printed these bulletins myself. <clears throat> no one to blame but me. 428. This, this is the word of our God. Let him who stole steal no more, longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we uh, do ask that we would, uh, as this verse in Ephesians presents us with not only the, the negative, but the positive of keeping your law, we ask that we would have hearts that are content to fill a little space, if that makes you glorified, and content to fill that space with little, if that glorifies you. Uh, Lord, give us the right hearts to fulfill this law, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, back uh, a little over a decade ago, the the Barna poll asked Christians uh, if they thought they kept the Eighth Commandment. Um, I, I, I'm assuming you're all familiar with the Barna polls. They they do all these uh, uh, hundreds of questions to to Christians in America or or uh, evangelicals in America. Um, of course, their answers only represent the people who answer polls. With, which I, I'm not sure that means it's very representative across the board, but, but it does speak to a lot of people. They took a poll, and 86% of the people they polled claimed that they had satisfied God's requirements of abstinence from stealing. 86% of Christians polled said, Yep, check, I've done that one, let's move on. And uh, maybe... Maybe it's obvious or should be obvious to us why uh, so many people would think that this was an easy one to just check off the, the list of 10 and say, I've done it, uh, because uh, we could easily look at it as simply stealing is when I go into a bank with a mask and a gun, or stealing is when I break into your house and take things from your house, or when I commit grand theft auto. And if that's all that stealing is, well, then I'm guessing most of you, and I know myself, have checked this one off the list. And and we can feel quite good about ourselves. 
Um, but as we've already noted with our catechism questions, uh, and as I'm hoping none of you needed the catechism question to know, in God's eyes, stealing uh, covers a great many things beyond busting into a bank vault. And so we, we need to be clear about that when we think about this commandment. Um, what does stealing mean? What all does it include? And of course, that's a, a huge topic. But as we think about stealing, I liked how Merriam-Webster Dictionary put as stealing is to take the property of another wrongfully. And what I liked about that very simple definition is uh, where it puts the wrongfully. Um, the wrongfully is put on you taking something from someone else. And yet, I think it's very easy for our hearts to say, it's okay for me to take it from you if you have it wrongfully. I mean, we grow up with Robin Hood. You take from the rich to give to the poor. You don't deserve to have it, so it's okay for me to take it away from you. Our hearts do a lot of subtle things like that. And I like that Merriam-Webster qualifies the, the it's wrongfully you wrongfully taking how the other person got the got the the money got the gold or got the object is irrelevant to whether you're stealing or not when you wrongfully take it they may also stand guilty before god for having taken it from someone else in the first place or from getting it by false means but you aren't responsible for that. You as an individual are responsible for how you take it from them. And uh, so I, I think that can be a, a helpful uh, kind of starting point. But I think we could maybe even give a different definition for what the, bi the Bible's talking about when it talks about stealing. We could say that biblically to steal is to take that which God has not given to you in this moment from someone to whom he has given it in this moment. Uh, that is, when we apply our, our understanding of God's sovereignty over all things to the discussion of my possessions, uh, if I don't have it right now, it doesn't mean God never will allow me to have it, but it simply means he hasn't given it to me right now. And for me to pursue getting it by false or wrongful means is stealing. And, uh, and it's also flying in the face of his providence in allowing someone else to have that right now. God has given some people a great deal of possessions. He has not given others of us as many possessions. Although he's given all of us more possessions than a lot of other people have. And we're all, we're all to see that he gives uh, at this moment certain things and not other things. And it's, it's never right for us to take wrongfully what he's given to others right now. Uh, if, we, if we think about this emphasis on the wrongfully part, uh, then I, I think we can start thinking of a, a lot of other ways we can steal that... Uh, aren't just breaking into a bank. And that's a lot of what I want to do tonight is just put some of these thoughts before us so that we can meditate on them more. 
James Boyce talks about two areas in which Christians often steal. He talks about uh, Christian stealing when it comes to their worship of God and their jobs. So he writes, there are many ways that we can steal. We can steal from God when we fail to worship him as we ought, or when we set our own interests above his interests. We steal from God when we fail to honor him by our lives or fail to tell others of his love. That hurt when I read that, that last one, that we steal from God when we fail to tell others of his love. It's an interesting thought. I'll let you go home and pray about whether you think he's right in calling that a breaking of the eighth commandment specifically, but but certainly he's getting at something. When we don't take opportunities God puts in our way to share the gospel, is that stealing something from God, stealing a a moment of of service that we owe to him, perhaps. Well, Boyce goes on then, uh, we steal from an employer when we do not give the best work of which we are capable, or when we waste time or consistently leave work early, if we are in business, we can steal by overcharging what we make. Uh, we steal if we sell an inferior product, pretending it's better than it is. We steal by borrowing and not repaying. We steal by damaging another's reputation. We steal from ourselves when we waste time, talents, and resources that God has entrusted to us. Wow, there's, there's a lot packed in there, isn't there? Uh, We steal when we borrow and then don't return. Uh, As I was working on this, I walked out to my garage two weeks ago, and uh, there was something that belonged to Rich, and there was something else that belonged to Rich, and I I discovered I had borrowed quite a few things from Rich and never returned them, Um, and uh, I, I I have gone and confessed that to him since then. But uh, it's an easy thing to do, right? It's not necessarily something you walk into saying, I'm going to steal this. I'm never going to return it. But you might just not take their property seriously enough. And then it's like stealing because you never give something back. Um, one, one thing about worship that Boyce mentions there drew my attention to one specific aspect of worship. Malachi 3 verse 8, God says, Will a man rob God? And yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. That's a very powerful thought when you compare it to the eighth commandment, isn't it? God is saying, uh, I have given you this thing for now, but it's not actually yours. It's mine. And I've given you these possessions, but I've called on you to give back to me for the work of the kingdom. And therefore, it's stealing when we don't. A very serious thing, uh, indeed. Uh, Another commentator, R. Kent Hughes, talks about a paper that was given at an American Psychological Association symposium on employee theft. They presented a breakdown on the $8 billion that inventory shortages cost department and chain stores every year. $8 billion in inventory shortages. And this was at least a decade ago when this was written. 
So I, I'm willing to bet it's probably a bit more than 8 billion missing from inventory a year at this point. But here's how they broke it down. Of these losses, 10% were due to clerical error, 30% to shoplifting, and a shocking 60% to theft. $16 million a day to theft by employees. And again, that was over a decade ago. That 60% was due to theft by employees, $16 million per day. It's just a post-it note, right? Uh, it's just a, a box of paper clips. It, it's just, right, it, I, I, I'm guessing a big chunk of that $16 million a day is it's just this. It's just a ream of paper and my printer's empty. It's just this, it's just that. But so many are doing it that it adds up to $16 million a day. Uh, R. Kent Hughes goes on to say, The ethics of the land have penetrated the church as well. In most cases, it is far more subtle. Padded expense accounts. Inadequate income tax reporting. Borrowing and forgetting to return and using the employer's time for things other than work. I, I'm afraid that he's probably rather accurate about a lot of Christians and a lot of churches in that thought. Well, what are some other ways we might uh, break this Eighth Commandment? Um, one of, I, I, was, I was reflecting on things we said when I was a child. That was one of the, the things I did this past week. Things that we used to say. And one of those was, finders keepers. Is that a biblical thought? Finders keepers. Taking what you find on someone else's property. It's not your property. And it's not, it's not your property perhaps in two different ways. Maybe you're not even on your own land. And it's not your property that you're taking does the Bible say finders keepers? Well, it doesn't have a direct answer to that, uh, perhaps, although I think thou shalt not steal is a pretty direct answer to that. Um, but one of the things that popped into my mind when thinking about that is a parable. And the point of the parable isn't about theft or property, but it shows us how Christ in his day viewed uh, the gaining of what you find. And that, that parable is the parable of the man who was walking through a field and found a great treasure. And perhaps you've, you've heard about why that would happen in the ancient Near East. Of course, they didn't have banks in the way that we have banks. So as you accumulated wealth, and there might be marauders or Roman soldiers or whomever who were going to come through and steal from you, you would take some of your wealth and maybe you'd have a, a tree or a, a stone wall or, or a big boulder out in the middle of your field and it would be a good marker and you would bury some treasure next to it. Well, over the years, as you can imagine, uh, some people died and their children didn't know where all the treasure was. And so it wasn't an uncommon thing to randomly find money hidden somewhere on a property. And so Christ tells this parable of the man who stumbles across it. And what does the man say? Finders keepers. I'll, I'll just dig this up. They probably don't even know it's here. I'll just take it home. 
No, the, the custom of the land was you weren't allowed to take it from that spot. But you also didn't have to go and tell the owner that it was there. You could go. I'm not saying this is right. But, but you could go and you could say, I'd like to buy that field you have out back. And if the person sold it to you, the minute that you shook hands and that sale went through, you could, you could find a billion dollars hidden around the stone wall and the tree and they could never take it back from you. So if you were the owner and you knew that there was treasure on your property, you would, or, or if it didn't make sense why all of a sudden Nathan wanted to buy your property for no reason, uh, you, you might say, well, give me a week. And then you might go out there with your shovel and start looking. What did Nathan find? Uh, or, or whatever. And, and you would take anything you could and then you'd sell the land and it was yours. But once the money changed hands, then it was the person who had bought the property. But I, I think that that's, of course, not the point to talk about stealing or property. But I think in giving that parable, Christ shows us that how the, the biblical worldview is on finders keepers. It's not yours just because you found it. You have to make it yours and you don't make it by taking it. You make it yours by purchasing it. Um, so I think that's one way we can, we can easily get snared. Or I already mentioned Robin Hood, stealing from the rich to give to the poor. Uh, in, in fact, far from agreeing with the Robin Hood scheme, uh, Scripture actually forbids this kind of mentality of take from the rich to give to the poor. Leviticus 19.15. I know I've quoted this a number of times the past year or two, uh, but I think it's a verse that's worth getting into your minds because it says a lot to our society today and how we think. Leviticus 19.15 assumes that society will have both rich and poor. It says, God says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Think about how that's phrased. Because in America, we would expect this verse to be phrased, you shall not be partial to the rich, nor honor the person of the mighty. But what God says is, you shall not be partial to the poor, or partial to the mighty. Right? It's impartiality when it comes to judgment and decisions. And that shows that scripture has a mindset that says, it's not more righteous to be poor than it is to be rich. Both can be righteous, both can be unrighteous. We, we have to really assess how we view property. Um, in fact, Scripture presents private property as a, as a good thing. It's a good thing that sinners will always and often misrepresent in their own minds. Uh, we'll ask, is that person poor who sinned, him or his parents? Well, maybe we don't crassly ask that, but we're like the disciples sometimes. If that person's poor, it's because they're sinning in some way. And scripture presents us with the poor who are with us. They may have some sin that has led to their, their poverty. They may also be trying not to be poor and not, uh, not succeeding in gaining what they need. Interestingly, in the church, God provides for those who are trying but cannot gain what they need. 
God cares about that. Why? Because it's not evil to be a widow or an orphan or impoverished in and of itself. But neither does scripture present it as evil to be rich and to have property. And in fact, think of some of the women who are, uh, the book of Acts is, is all these women who are being praised right and left. And who are they every time? They're these rich women who are giving to all the poor. Uh, Dorcas dies and all the poor run to Peter and say, oh, look at the, look at the clothing she made for us. Look at the wealth she distributed to us and the care that she gave to us. There is someone who didn't give up all her wealth. She was still rich, but she used it righteously. And God praises that. So private property is a good thing in scripture. Being rich isn't worse than being poor in and of itself and vice versa. Uh, And so that, that really challenges the Robin Hood mentality that assumes having money means it ought to be taken from you. Um, and, and we all like to glorify that. Uh, another, as I, as I was thinking about things from childhood that are stealing, I thought about playtime. And a specific picture popped into my mind from a, a, a busy, town, busy town book of manners, something like that that I believe at least the Johnsons used to own, because I think that's where we got our copy, was, was from Chris. Uh, but there was a, a busy town book of manners, which is a phenomenal little book on manners. And uh, one, of the, one of the stories in it, Hilda the Hippo, I think is her name, uh, has a party. And she invites all these people over. And one of the people that comes over, uh, I think he's Harry the Hyena or something like that. He looks kind of crazy. And, he, and what he does is he picks up a vase from a table and starts swinging it around over his head. And Hilda has to say, that's not for playing with. Um, I was reflecting on that, that if we use other people's property uh, recklessly so that what they possessed one moment they no longer possess because I broke it. In one sense, that's a breaking of the Eighth Commandment as well, isn't it? I may not have taken the broken vase home with me and stolen it in that sense, but I've taken it out of their possession by shattering it in a reckless manner. Now, we all do things like this by accident, and of course that's very different. But if, if you're Harry the Hyena, or whatever his name is, and you're swinging that vase over your head, then uh, that's, that's a misuse of the other person's property. Or coming off of that thought, we could also think about uh, if we're at someone else's house, maybe for a playtime or something like that, and they ask us not to make use of something that's theirs. So maybe uh, I come over and someone says, well, Nathan, we don't want you playing with these Legos because, I don't know, you're going to break apart the nice house or castle I built. It's your property. It's not my property. And so uh, one of the implications of the Eighth Commandment would be that if you, the owner, say, let's not use that, then it would be breaking the Eighth Commandment for me to go and say, I'm going to do it anyway. And then I flip this one around a bit. If, if, all, the, if all the things are open for use, the toys and, and so forth, and uh, I'm the owner of, of the toy, 
and you're using it and I just take it away from you. Ooh, there's, there's an interesting question. Is there stealing going on if it's my property, which you're using first, and I take it out of your hand? I had to think about that for a little bit. But I, I think if we, if we say, well, you're a guest in my house, you're allowed to make use of these things. I haven't asked you to not use it. I'm not currently asking in a nice way, well, let's put that away because it's fragile, but rather I'm just taking it because it's mine and I'm going to use it. I, I think that also in God's eyes would fall under, it would be inhospitable at least. And I think it's inhospitable in a stealing it type of way. We could go on and on with these types of examples, right? How we use or abuse other people's property. And and then that puts a, a a requirement on us for how we do use other people's property. So if I'm over your house and playing with your stuff, how am I using it? If I'm at Mr. Peter's house, I'm usually at the bookshelf. But what do I do when I'm at the bookshelf at Mr. Peter's house? Maybe I take the book and I think, ooh, this needs to be broken in. And I do one of these things. And it's an old book, and the, the whole binding just cracks, right? Well, that, surely that would fall under the category of uh, 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 the Eighth Commandment, or the abuse of it. I've actually noticed that at, at Mr. Peter's house, when I'm there, the books that he's borrowed from me, he puts in Ziploc bags and stores on the shelf so that they don't end up with crayon and stuff on them. I've never seen someone keep the Eighth Commandment that well when borrowing my books, and uh, it's quite nice. Uh, <laughs> but but we, we can do things where we, we are breaking the heart of the Eighth Commandment with other people's property in a variety of ways. Uh, I, I suspect you could all come up with 10 or 15 other things like that. And uh, feel free to email me your list of ways that we break the Eighth Commandment this week in our homes. Well, the the Eighth Commandment has the positive side of it. Remember uh, when we did Heidelberg Catechism, and if you're familiar with the Shorter or Larger Catechism, every one of the Ten Commandments not only has the thing it forbids, it also has the implied thing you must do, or vice versa. And so here we are not to steal, but what are we to do? And we, we gave a, a wonderful catechism answer together. But I, I think the great biblical verse that tells us the positive thing is the one we're looking at tonight here. Ephesians 4.28 Let him who steal, uh, stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that may, he may have something to give to him who has who has need. We are not just to leave stealing behind. We are to do that, but it's not to stop there. We are to work, to gain by labor what we need to live. But it doesn't stop there either, does it? The positive is not simply be a diligent worker. It goes beyond that. The command is not just about what you need. So we, we steal because we're most interested in what I want. And the opposite of that is not simply being content with what I have. Ephesians 4.28 is saying, 
The opposite is of being obsessed with what I want at the expense of you is caring about what you need, even if it's at the expense of me. Work diligently so that, so that what? So that you can meet all your bills. No, it's so that he may have something to give to him who has need. We are to work diligently so that if possible, we're back to property not being wrong. If possible, by working, you'll have more than what you need so that you can give to someone else. And particularly, give to someone who may be especially tempted to steal. Right? There's certainly times when certain sins are the biggest temptation. If you're, if you're one of the, the very poor people who don't have a home here in Greenfield, maybe you have your children with you, how hard it would be to fight off the temptation that it would be okay to break into the back of someone's house and just take a loaf of bread. Half of us might not even notice. Well, Ephesians 4.28 is saying, since such temptations are very strong, since you once stole so you know how strong the temptation is, you ought to put extra energy into your work so that you are able to remove that temptation from someone else by giving what they need. Uh, Stuart Alliant writes, It is not enough to stop something bad. You must start something good. Get to work. Meet your needs by honest toil. Stop looking for an easy life. And remember this. God expects you not only to meet your own needs, but also to use your earnings to help those in want. It's a powerful challenge. Well, Briefly then, in conclusion, how, how can we aim to live an Eighth Commandment life? I think three things we can consider uh, that will help us in keeping the Eighth Commandment. First is to set our eyes on the right treasure. Set our eyes on the, the right treasure. Remember what Christ says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew six, nineteen and following. If we're setting our heart's affection on heaven, on our eternal place with Christ, on the riches we have, in Jesus Christ, then the temptation to take what is not ours, the lust of the flesh to have and possess, will be driven off. This is why Paul's tactic for fighting sin in Colossians 3, not just theft, but other sins as well, Colossians 3 is to set your mind on things above where Christ is, for your life is hidden with Christ in God, or God in Christ. We turn our eyes from uh, the, the stuff of earth. I think it was Rich Mullins who used that phrase, stuff of earth. 
such a uh, kind of scornful phrase. Uh, it's always stuck with me. We turn our eyes from the stuff of earth that we might uh, see it diminish and it will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. First Peter 1, 3 through 5 emphasizes this as well. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. It's I, I find that a very interesting thing Peter says there. First, he would combat our our lusts and covetousness and our breaking of the eighth commandment and stealing by telling us there's a better treasure reserved for you. And then he also adds that we ourselves are kept by the power of God. And those should both work together as we set our minds and our affections on the right treasures, the treasure of heaven, they should drive us away from this. But then, secondly, if we want to live an Eighth Commandment life, we need to remember that we are a caretaker. Remember that you are a caretaker rather than an owner or a master yourself. And I'll let you go and read it just because of time, but Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30 Christ talks about the the gifts, the talents that we've been given and how we invest them or fail to invest them for his kingdom. He talks about stewardship in a number of parables and we ought to take all of that very much to heart as we think about the eighth commandment. The stewardship has... Uh, this this idea of stewardship, remembering that we are caretakers for him, has uh, an infinite motivation for us to cheerfully serve. It is the response to the gospel itself. We are caretakers on behalf of the one who gave everything to redeem us. And then we are caretakers. This stewardship has uh, is also a response to worship. Worship done biblically should lead to life of keeping the Eighth Commandment. And we can see this in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. Chapter 2, verse 42 of Acts shows us the apostolic worship service. They continued in uh, the Apostles' Doctrine, that's preaching, the breaking of the bread, that's the Lord's Supper, and the fellowship, and, and, uh, and the prayers. So there's your worship service. And then in 43 and following, we see they go out. And what do they do? Well, after having broken bread together in worship, they are day to day in each other's homes eating together. After having had the fellowship, and that might even be the the giving of offerings and worship, they go out and in the rest of the life, they're giving to all who have need. It's a, a wonderful example of worship doing something which leads to that same transformation in the rest of life. We can't get enough of giving to God when we worship him rightly. And so we want to give to others throughout the week on his behalf. And this stewardship has 
uh, three special tasks clearly given to it. Uh, first task of stewardship with our possessions is the family. First Timothy 5 verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his own household and uh, his own his own, which would probably be his tribe, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a high call of stewardship, isn't it? To be worse than an unbeliever if you don't care for your own family. And then the second area of this stewardship is hospitality. First Peter 4.9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then third is care for the poor, which of course Ephesians 4.28 is perhaps the best verse to emphasize. So if we want to be keeping the Eighth Commandment in life, we, we set our affections and our minds on the right treasure, we remember that we are caretakers, and then I, I think also remember that God has given us a resource and an example. So God has given us a resource for keeping the Eighth Commandment, which is the office of deacon. So, in our churches, both of our churches, there there are three men that God has given as a resource to help the rest of us not break the Eighth Commandment. That's an astonishing thing when you think about that, that God puts such a high priority on this, that the hospitality, the caregiving, the mercy ministry... Uh, the, the provision for those in need uh, all has its own unique office in the church and not an office of simply looking at someone and saying, oh, that's how it's done. That's part of it. But also being able to go to the, the men and say, how can I do this? An office through which perhaps a windfall comes your way and you have this money and you want to care for people in need. You don't know who those people are, and God has built into the very structure of his church someone to go to and say, you know, Don, I have this extra money. Who, who at Covenant Church really needs it right now? Uh, Peter, Sean, who is in great need? God has given us a resource to help us keep the Eighth Commandment. And then, of course, he's given us an example, the greatest example, Second Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. If ever we had a motivation, an example to keep the eighth commandment, there it is. He was rich. When we were impoverished in our sins, yet he became poor, that through his poverty we might be eternally rich. Let's pray. Father, we know that each of your commandments is exceedingly broad, that in your commandments are many sins that we subtly seek to hold dear, to keep secret from others. And Father, we confess that uh, in the sin of stealing, it is easy to think of it as something wicked people do and to disassociate ourselves from that act. 
But Lord, we also confess that we have broken this commandment in a number of ways, some subtle, some not. And we have certainly failed to positively care for others as we ought in your name. So Lord, we pray that you will forgive us. We pray that you will create in us hearts that long to care for those in need, that long to use what you have given us for your glory and not our own pride and our own lusts. Father, make us content to fill a little space for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name.